Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Who you know fresher than whole? Riddle me that. The rest of y'all know where I'm lurking at. Can none of y'all mirror me back? Yeah, hear me rap. It's like Hang G rapping is prime. I'm young H.O. Rap's great for dead. on a Saturday night, and I am back with my partner, undercover in this nightclub, Katie Walsh. I am Blake Howard. This is Miami Nice, and today joining us, Katie, is a man whose novels are now on the New York Times bestseller list, whose uh, incredible work is filled with regret, redemption, and revenge, set in the rural United States. It's a reclamation of that rural noir. Um, he is also uh, quite the apt cinephile game night practitioner uh, and 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 usually under the influence uh, whilst he's playing. I think that actually improves his, uh, his skills. It is the awesome. People know him as S.A. Crosby, but for us, he's going to be Sean. Sean, thank you so much for coming and being a part of Miami Nice. Well, thank you guys for having me. Uh, I appreciate it. And yeah, uh, I'm not quite as uh, inebriated <laughs> as I was the last time we played the Cinephile game. Because uh, I'm just now sipping. I, I actually got a gift in the mail a few days ago from my uh, a bookstore that I did a, a Zoom uh, book event with. And they sent me a really nice bottle of whiskey. Uh, so I'm just sipping on that very lightly. The last time we played the Cinephile game... <laughs> I had been out to dinner earlier <laughs> celebrating some stuff going on and I had quite the, uh, there's a drink in America called old fashioned and I had quite a few old fashions to where I had to start getting some new fashion drinks. <laughs> and then I remembered I had to do the cinephile game. So I came That's home amazing. and I did the cinephile game and I, I feel like I kind of started out really good. And then I went through the three stages of, of uh, inebriation because it, it's, you're mad, glad, and sad. Amazing. So I was, I was, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't really mad. I was more intense. And then I got very melancholy. There was a lot of like nostalgia, a lot of "I love you guys" type stuff going on. And, was, and so I'm, I'm quite happy to redeem myself tonight to have an erudite and intelligent conversation. <laughs> As opposed to my whiskey soap lap, uh, lamination. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I'm going to have to go back and watch the replay on, of that recording. Honestly, a highlight of the year. Honestly, a highlight of the year. <laughs> truly, truly. Um, but Sean, so, you know, uh, for folks who may have read some of your stuff and be aware of you, um, also friend of this uh, whole One Heat Minute Productions is uh, Jen Johan. She has a terrific podcast called Watch With Jen. And I guess I, I'd known you because you'd come onto our Increment, uh, Increment Vice podcast. I knew you were a noir fan and that was, you know, uh, your complete jam. But then tracking your obsession into more what I guess broadly we can call neon noirs, which is like coming all the way up to say like a Nicholas Winding reference, The Driver and things like that. I feel like um, Miami Vice absolutely sits in that world. And so I, I want to talk to you about like what – 
what kind of fan have you been of this movie? Was it always this movie or was it something that you'd love for a much longer time, like all the way back to the TV show, for example? Well, yeah. I mean, my fascination with Miami Vice starts with the TV show. And, uh, you know, I'm I, again, I'm dating myself when I say this, but growing up in, you know, a very rural part of, of the United States South in Virginia, uh, Miami Vice, the TV show, was like a surreal epiphany it was uh it was it was like this incredible trip that you took without drugs because <laughs> it was so far removed from my reality that i became obsessed with it as a kid i remember me and my brother we lived when i was a kid we, we lived with my grandparents my mom and uh, dad separates so we moved to my grandparents and my grandfather loved this show called hee-haw hee-haw was this country and western blues well not really blues i would just say country and western variety show and uh, he loved that show, but, and this sounds, makes me sound like such a terrible person. My grandfather couldn't read. And so when he would ask me in the TV guide, uh, you know, what time does the Hee Haw come on? When Miami <laughs> Vice started airing, I, I lied for the first couple of weeks. And I was like, oh, granddad, I don't think, I think they, uh, I think they preempted it. I don't think it's coming on tonight because <laughs> Miami Vice and Hee Haw came on at the same time. And so that's how much until my grandmother found out we were doing it and, 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 and shoot us out you were but like they canceled so hee-haw grandpa i don't know what's yeah, going on what i'm just as upset as you are um but uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but uh, i was fascinated with tv show i watched every season uh right up to the end and so when the movie came out i, I initially was incredible incredibly intrigued to see where it would go because you know michael mann that was you know huge influence on the tv show uh created it and um you know he's behind the movie as well and i'm a big fan of heat and um all of michael mann movies going back to manhunter so when i finally saw the movie i was i was uh i was a huge fan but it, i was also kind of taken aback at how different the story in the movie diverged from what i was uh had become uh, enamored with in the TV show. And of course, the TV show was an episodic show, so every week there was a different uh, uh, villain, a different uh, uh, case that they had to solve based around narcotics. And yes, as the TV show goes on, it becomes a, a tad bit goofy. There, you know, why does not why does no one figure out that Sonny Crockett and Sonny Burnett are the same people? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> What happened to Elvis the Gator, which disappeared in season two? Uh, why have none? Why have none of the drug dealers just killed uh, Crockett and Tubbs? Because everybody knew they're the worst <laughs> undercover agents in history. But that being said, as a kid watching it, the like you said, the neon noir aspects of it is what drew me in, and so I was very pleasantly surprised to see that same sensibility, that same cinematography, that same sense of atmosphere was present in the movie as well. It's um, it's really interesting to hear you call it like that surreal epiphany of a show because I imagine like it, it, there's so many incongruities when you like look on paper of what Miami Vice the TV show is. It's like they're undercover cops and narcotics, and these guys are like these guys are like chameleonic. They can go anywhere, and it's like the whole show is how loud are my pants? You know how <laughs> how loud is my yacht with my alligator? You know, like nothing nothing says subtle. But it's right. just that, like, no. there is that silly thing that happens where you're like, it is a lie that we, you know, it's that great Deadwood line, the, the lie agreed upon, you know, like it's the lie agreed mm -hmm. upon that, like, your bar if your barrier for entry is you need these guys to be chameleonic and subtle, 
this is not the undercover, in inverted commas, <laughs> text for you. And I think that that also plays a bit. And I, and this is, I guess, the brilliance and the, the great what if, the closing door moment of not having more episodes of Miami Vice as an ongoing film series or whatever the case may be is because, like, man, they burn some bridges in this movie. <laughs> you oh, know? yeah. Yeah. And, it, and I think it's the same suspicion of disbelief you know there's a term yes. in literature that especially when you're writing it's usually term you know using horror or or uh, speculative fiction the suspension of disbelief you know it's the buy-in you know yeah. it's can you convince the reader to go along with this story and accept the contextuality of what's going on and i think even with, with when you write crime stories there is a bit of that that you have to en endeavor to create and the movie does it in a much different way than a TV show. Again, I'm not going to belabor the point about a TV show too much, but as a kid in the 80s, growing up in a, like I said, in a very rural, very poverty-stricken area, I immediately bought in. You know, yeah, yeah I see all the plot holes. I don't, I don't care because they're driving around in Ferraris and Corvettes. They're dating <laughs> beautiful women. They're having shootouts. You know, they're the epitome of 80s excess machismo. Whereas the movie took all of that in my opinion, took all that and kind of turned it on his head, you yeah. know, it, and it, it became much more about the way these two characters navigate the lying, the betrayal, the constant chicanery and, and mendacity that you have to have to be an undercover agent. And of course, it, it stole a little bit from the TV show where Sonny falls in love with the target of the boss of the people, the, the girlfriend that they try and all that soap opera stuff. But again, seen through the prism and lens of this sort of neon post modernism noir where nothing matters but everything matters and 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 there are no morals but you accept your own code but your own code is compromised and so i i found it fascinating i found it it really as a sort of a a, a counterpoint excuse me as a counterpoint to heat where neil mccauley has this very rigid strict code and and hannah has this very rigid strict code and because of that they respect each other Whereas in Miami Vice, you know, Crockett and Tubbs, they're lying to everyone. You know, even at some points, they're bosses. And so there's their, their code is no code, so to speak. Yeah. And so I found that interesting from a writing standpoint. Yeah, I think the suspension of disbelief thing is interesting because I think, like, as a film critic and as a film viewer, as a fan, like, I will buy anything if like the emotional tenor is right, if the vibe is right, if the style is right. I'm like, I don't care if, you know, that doesn't quite match up or there's a plot hole. Like, I just want to go with it because I'm the world is so rich. And I think that's probably the case for both the TV show and the movie. Yeah, I think it's a skill to get people to buy in. I, I remember a really funny rant from an Aussie comedian on radio about he got really mad at, um, I think it's the Bourne ultimatum. He got really mad. He's like, mm -hmm. Jason Bourne's walking around with the same face. How can't they find out that it's Jason Bourne, like, coming in and out of these countries? It's just Matt Damon. Like, he's just not wearing a disguise. He got so angry. Right. And it was just a hilarious rant because, like, as a movie fan, you realize the you realize the suspension and disbelief and the skill of like Paul Greengrass and his whole team. And just the, the tone of that whole story. I think it's just a beautiful, 
companion. You know, it's like that contemporary espionage, uh, another great example of a contemporary espionage that has a real tone and style, just like Miami Vice does. And I feel like that was just a funny rant I remember because I was like, I never even, like, for one second was not completely <laughs> in with Jason Bourne. Like, I was all in. I was, forget he doesn't have a disguise. I don't care. You know, it doesn't need to be Val Kilmer in The Saint. Um, I needed it to be, I needed it to be that. Um, but I, I love hearing you talk about it, Sean, because I think as a creator, and I just admire you as a creator, is Miami Vice, the TV show versus Miami Vice, the film, must provide a great case study for how you take the same ingredients and you brew something completely different, you know? Like, and I feel like oh, yeah. for a writer and a creator like you, like you must be looking at like different themes and things that'll come along and, you know, hundreds of short stories that you've written that are probably unpublished under the bed as before the, you know, the novels, you know, all those things. And there's those themes that pop up and how I'm, how you manipulate them to create new things. Cause I feel like that's one, one thing that Miami Vice and Miami Nice fans like us talking about with the Michael Mann of it all is, that he is able to take, I guess, the same structural themes and then just flip them about and change them around, and they can they can resonate completely in completely different ways. Well, and the thing that he did that I think was specifically uh, interesting to me in Miami Vice the movie is he changed the tone. You know, the tone of Miami Vice the TV show is it's serious, but they're we're all in on the joke. So they're serious, but we're not taking them seriously. You know what I'm saying? Like, again, go back to like, you know, they're the worst undercover agents in the world and everybody <laughs> knows who they are. And, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and you know, if you break it down, if you keep tearing it down, they have the worst snitches. Everybody knows who their snitches are, yeah. you know? And, and, you know, and so it's like, there's no secret undercover to them, but we, they take it, they play it so straight. You know, I remember that this, is a, a diversion a little bit from the movie, but I I remember when uh, they finally caught up because the first two seasons the, the enemy was a, a drug dealer named Calderon Calderon yes and he's the one who killed uh, Rico Tubbs' uh, brother and he, he was uh, you know he was the head of the cartel and and you know and I and and when they finally caught up with him I was all bought in on that like I was totally wrapped in front of my big four model television as a kid <laughs> because they had played it so straight they played it almost like it was biblical and operatic and of course it's the 80s so they didn't let uh they didn't let philip michael thomas get the revenge it had to be the white guy you know uh yeah. don johnson the one who actually kills Calderon, while philip michael thomas stands there holding his uh Calderon's daughter's hand who he's falling in love with and <laughs> screaming which, which was, as a kid especially as a black kid in america i was like couldn't you just, couldn't you like at least let him kick him or something? I mean, like, <laughs> couldn't he get in on this a little? And so what Michael Mann did is I wonder, I'd love to ask him, I wonder if he looked at a TV show and saw the sort of almost comedic elements of it and then decided, okay, I'm going to flip down on his head in the movie. I'm going to make it really serious. I'm going to have Colin Farrell. I'm going to have, you know, uh, Jamie Foxx. And I'm going to have these guys play it deadly serious and up the stakes. You know, because it's not just drugs, it's gun running, it's, you know, international terrorism to a certain extent. And I think as a creator, I'd love to ask him, like, because it's all about tone, isn't it? I mean, you can say to somebody, you know, you can tell somebody, oh, man, your hair smells beautiful. 
And if you know them, it's a compliment. If you're a stranger that walks up behind them in a library, it's terrifying. And so I think, <laughs> and so I, I, I think it's all about tone, and I think he changed the tone incredibly well, and, and created, like I said, this incredibly dark, but again, this incredibly dark tonally story that is still tone told through this amazing cinematograph, cinematog uh, cinematography and color palette. And so, yeah, I would definitely include Miami Vice in the neon noir discussion uh, where the color palette in the, is also indicative of the emotional journey that the character is going on, you know? And, totally. and so a lot of that, yeah. Like the, the, un the unrealistic color of the sky, the like weird purple haze, like all of it is just sort of lending to this like, the world is upside down, things are, you know, beneath the surface, disturbed and, and all of these things. Yeah, really. And the, the dark gloominess and everything. It's like all at night. Even the plot colored freeways, you know, those lights that just look like stained teeth and yeah. everything looks like it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of this false like false illumination everything feels weird and augmented and it's yeah it's almost like looking in like a something that's um something that's growing you know like something you've left in your fridge for too long i think some of this part yeah, of this the, movie looks like a lot of the palette and the color palette is indicative of the corruption of their souls yeah you yeah know, it, it show it's, it's the rot inside you know what it looks like it looks like somebody looked at the movie tequila sunrise and said okay let's turn it back five notches <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we're gonna get the color palette because tequila sunrise i remember the first time i looked at it i was like am i high and, and if i drop acid because why does everything have this weird orange hellish patina and it's like why is kurt russell's teeth so damn white what is going on <laughs> but even in the like some of the daytime scenes like it's like garish. It's almost like the garish, the sun is too bright. Like, it's like, it doesn't feel, it, there's an unreality to it that I think you're you're hitting on totally with, with the like color palette stuff. Like it just doesn't feel like the world that we live in. So it, it's heightened yeah. in some way. It's a hyper-realistic world that is in reflective of this hyper-reality that they live in as undercover agents, as liars. You know, they, yeah. they, they lie constantly. And so even they, it's like the food, and I, I wonder if they did this on purpose. The movie makes you feel like you can't even trust your lying eyes. You know, it's like yeah. you can't trust what you see because this is not reality. Where does the sun look like this? Where does the sky look like this? And it's a very subtle thing. And that I, I wonder, and you know, Michael Mann is the godfather of Neon Noir. He's the master of using, you know, illumination and tone and color palettes to create a sense of dread, a sense of drama. You know, Nicholas Redfern stole that from him, or I'm sorry, uh, did an homage to him <laughs> in Drive. And um, but it, it definitely started with Thief and and moved on through Manhunter and uh, and into a lot of his work. And I find that I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating when a director uh, has a certain signature style, much like a writer, you know, and, and I, I think it's uh, interesting to see how he's uh, he's matured, I guess is a way of saying it, in using it more judiciously as he's yeah. uh, moved forward in his career. Yeah, I, I, I love the aspect of lying. Um, and he, it, it's, it, it's definitely, it, it's great that, that that interpretation rings true for a lot of the people who really resonate 
like who this movie resonates with because I think that he was really intent on that. It is such a weird, hollow world. And even when you see the interviews with some of the the consultants on the film who are actually like former Miami Dade undercover cops, like they kind of look a bit broken. Like one of the guys tells this great story. He's like, I left a club. I was wearing like a $5,000 suit. I had you know, 10 grand in my pocket. I had a gut, like I had a gun. I'd been out all night. I'd been spending money in this false drug deal. Hundreds of thousands of dollars being splashed around. I'm driving a Corvette or driving a Ferrari. And then I go back to the office and I park that Ferrari in the police, <laughs> in a police underground car park. I get changed out of my $5,000 suit. I go to my locker, I have a shower and I walk back to my Volvo and I right. drive home. <laughs> And I just always thought that like this movie doesn't ever really have that moment necessarily. But what it did was actually in one of the most recent episodes we talked about, it has that moment where Trudy's like, Hey Sonny. And he's like, Hey Trudy. And is it any wonder that these guys are just out of it? Like with how to relate to people Mm -hmm. on a natural, in a natural way, because everything is who the hell am I right now? Yeah. What is, what is the headspace that I need to be and how immersed do I need to be in this situation? And the stakes of their immersion, their method, the stakes is not, oh, can we do another take? Like, you know, that great Rick Dalton. Oh, can you roll it back? Can you roll it back? And once more, time in Hollywood, can you roll it back? Let's do it again. I fucked it up. I fucked it up. It's not that. It's like live or die. There's no second take. And so I, I, yeah. I, I'd like that, uh, that, is, that has the operatic tone I think this whole movie is trying to achieve. And I think it's interesting that they just, you know, that you have these two guys and part of their real life is the relationships or the the real Sonny and the real Tubbs is like, you know, Tubbs has this relationship in his civilian life with Trudy. And then it's like Sonny starts having this relationship with Isabella, which is in his undercover life. But it's like they're both going in opposite directions in terms of like what identity and what life they're living and it's like there's this tension and this clash of like who am i who am i with this person and all of those lines getting blurred and like kind of losing yourself in in all of that and i think geographically is interesting the difference between say miami vice and a movie like donnie brasco mm. um also yeah. it's a different time period but where donnie becomes enamored with not in a romantic way, but a platonic fraternal way with Lefty, Rogerio, and he feels guilty. And, this, you know, and the tension in that movie is, and even though I've read the book and I knew how it was going to end, and the tension in that movie is, is he going to turn Lefty in? Is he going to turn Lefty in? With Sonny and Tubbs, like you said, it's it's deep, it's it's more existential with them, mm. where yeah. it's, not, it's not just Isabel and Trudy and the drug dealers and the arms dealers they're working with. It's because it's Miami, because it's Miami, you know, they don't really state the time period, but it's present day. But let's say early 2000 Miami, where it's still a lot of drug dealing going on, where it's still a lot of violence going on. It's not the 80s, because I think that was something that helped the TV show, you know, inspired the TV show was the cocaine wars in in Florida in the 80s, where there are things that happened. Decadence decadence and and flagrant. Like those two things together, just like... They're, they're like, still making cocaine. They're still making cocaine cowboys TV shows and documentaries yeah. about Miami. Yeah, because it was so insane. It was the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, coated in cocaine. You know, <laughs> and so it's like, and so I think that decadence that still exists, even even though the movie is set, you know, years later, there's still something wild 
and untamed and like you said hedonistic about Miami that creates this sense this more this more intense existential divide with the, with the characters in Miami like than say a movie like Donnie Brasco or Serpico or or something like that um because everything is so over the top and I'm gonna use Donnie Brasco again one more time Donnie Brasco is very much a blue-collar work workman like undercover movie and yes. it's and it's telling a workman like blue collar story it's these small time grimy hoods who are kicking money up to the uh the bosses you know these are the worker bees Miami yeah. Vice is telling a whole different story these are playboy these are the kings and queens of cocaine these are you know the superstars of the underworld and Tubbs and Crockett they always have to get up to that level you know they, they can't and you can't stay at that level you know and I think uh, you know, Colin Farrell and and and, uh, and and Jamie Foxx do a great job of showing the strain on their souls, trying to stay up at that level all the time, not just physically but emotionally. I think you touched yeah. on something we haven't really touched on yet, which is at the beginning of the film or in the director's cut, which uh, in, in Katie's in my mind is inferior because it starts <laughs> with the boat race. You know, it's not it's not that <laughs> media res in the club that we love so much. But I think you touch on it, which is. In that hot, in that uh, undercover operation, they are they are in the worker bee lens, like they're just dealing with a pimp. You know, they're getting, you know, um, they're just orchestrating a deal where they're like trying to un- undercover like potential human trafficking and things like that. So, not that that is a not that that is a minor crime by any stretch of the imagination, right. but it, but it is on the scale of what they eventually get to. It's quite small, and that's that that great tension where Fujima, because they go undercover and they feel like they're just doing transport. Again, another worker bee operation. Mm-hmm. We're just worker bees. We're just in the transport. We're going to see the operation, but it's probably small scale, you know, uh, Aryan mm-hmm. Brotherhood, you know, running running um, drugs from a different country. And so when he's like, oh, kill this, they're like, no, I'm from the Ukraine. Like, it's like, this is the biggest, this is as big as a, a platform that we've ever gotten into. And we're we've gone from basically worker bees to literally standing in front of the devil, you know, or sitting in front of the devil. And he's like wishing our families well, like that's not ominous. Um, and, uh, you know, that, I, I think that that's a really great thing that there's no, there's no sort of explicit discussion about how much bigger it is other than this sort of frantic pissed off, like, no, you can't cancel this operation. And the great Barry Shabaka Henley just being like, listen, that you try and shine me on. Like, you know, like, like <laughs> the, the best line ever. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's really interesting because we literally see them jump exponentially and then have to fight to stay there. And obviously if you're their boss, like Barry Shabaka Henley or whatever, you're like, you know how impossible it is for them to be on this level right now. And you know, the dangers, but also, you know, that like, this is an opportunity to clearly that they've never really had up until this point. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, it's funny for, that you say that. I'm thinking about that because I'm fascinated in my own work with identity, like who we are versus who we say we are. Um, the you know the, the the mask that we have, the real mask, the interior mask, and the mask we don't show anybody else. And I think with especially with Sonny, I think Farrell played it. In my opinion, he played it very close to the to that line. Not that Sonny was ever going to become a criminal or ever was going to. You know, but the whole situation with Isabella pushes him very close to who am I really? You know, who who is Sonny and and what are my goals and what are my needs? And, you know, am I still a cop or am I just this guy doing things? And I think that's 
one for me the most fascinating aspect of the movie. Not that Tubbs' character is boring and all, but I think, and I would love, you know, again, I'm a fast, I'm fascinated by film. I'd love to talk to Michael Mann about his direction of of uh, 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 you know of um, Jamie Fox because he does play it a little bit more professionally, and not just because he's involved with Trudy. I just think he's, in my estimation, the character of Tubbs saw the operation differently than Crockett did. And I always felt like Farrell was playing it with Crockett. Not that he had a death wish, but he just felt very lost, you know, and, oh, yeah. and he didn't feel like he had an anchor. Um, and, and maybe it was a death wish. Maybe it was a, a subconscious death wish. But, you know, Crockett is the one that's always pushing it, pushing the level, pushing the envelope. And, you know, I, I thought that was an interesting choice by Farrell. And I wonder, I'd be interested to know whether that was something Farrell came up with or something that man pushed him to do. Katie, do you want to share with Sean the state of Colin Farrell in this movie as we've come to understand it? Because I feel like this is my favorite part, one of my favorite parts of the lore of this movie. Katie, please tell Sean about the state of Colin Farrell at that time. So right after they shot this, Colin Farrell got sober because he was basically blackout the entire shooting. Like he doesn't remember shooting this movie. Um, and also there are, there are photos with <laughs> there are photos there are photos of him partying in South America with none other than Katie please should tell Diego Sean. Diego Maradona there's like photos of him like oh right after God. the shoot like in a club like kissing Diego Maradona or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> not, you know, not, not like a French Like, a, fr was, like a, fr yeah. a friendly embrace, you know, a in the South American way. In smooch. the Latino kiss on the, kiss on the yeah. cheek, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, we, we've come to, to, to talk to, when we talk about his performance, we go, Colin's not there. Colin's not like, there. That's, that, Colin that's, is <laughs> gone. There is no... Yeah. I, I, and I love what you say just now in your analogy, you know, the mask that you have for yourself and then who people think you are. And I genuinely... And this is... I think that Jamie Vox is doing an incredibly uh, deft and deliberate performance as Tubbs being the anchor of the whole movie and the anchor of this operation and and... Man, it's satisfying when he gets to blow away Jose Yiro, you know, like when he gets yeah. his, he gets to exact his vengeance because that's the kind of clinician that he is in his mind and you get to watch mm -hmm. that. And Colin Farrell, like, you know, there's a phrase for authors, you know, their book is unputdownable. Like he is, yeah. you cannot look away yeah. because he's oh, no. just doing no. something else. And we cannot endorse how he got to that place. <laughs> but what we can endorse is this movie's <laughs> capturing of that and harnessing of that energy because it, it's it's transfixing. Like, he's just, he's, you have he's no... he's so present. He's so present. Yeah. And, um, he's, he's, yeah. I, I was just going to say, and, and, you know, even without knowing that backstory, he's so haunted in that yes. movie. Yes. yes. You know, he's so haunted in that movie. And you... You want to ask him, like, what did you do before this? What was, you know, what was your life before this? Because, you know, you've seen some shit, man. You know, yes. you've got those eyes that, you know, you've got those eyes that you, you've locked eyes with the devil and neither one of y'all blinked. And it's like, you know, he reminds me of, and I'm, and I'm going to sound crazy, so just bear with me, but he reminds me of Nicolas Cage's performance in a movie called Kiss of Death with uh, David Caruso. Great movie. Where he's just, he's just in a different place from everybody else, yeah. you know, like, and this was supposed to be, a, and I'm, I'm going off topic a little bit, so forgive me, but 
you know, this was Kiss to Death was supposed to be a star vehicle for David Caruso. Samuel Jackson's in it. Stanley Tucci's in it. Uh, you know, an early Ving Rains role. He's only in it for like five minutes, but Ving Rains is in it. You know, uh, Helen Hunt. All these great actors are in it. None of them can hold a candle to to Nicolas Cage when he's on screen. Yeah. None of them. He is in such a weird space in Kiss of Death. <laughs> it's like again, it's one of those things where I'm like. Cause I used to eat a lot of mushrooms back in the day. It's like, <laughs> I, am I having a flashback? Because I feel like I am having a flashback because Nicolas Cage is on another level. And I thought Colin Farrell was like that in Miami Vice, not quite as unique, but definitely in a different space. That's not to take anything away from Jamie Foxx's performance, which you said is very urbane and clinical and, and razor sharp and scalpel like. And, um, I, I I will say this though, and I love the movie, but I didn't feel they never achieved the chemistry that Don Johnson and and and, and Philip Michael Thomas had. Mm. There's there's and I think I wonder was that intentional? Was it because Colin Farrell was blackout drunk? What was the, <laughs> what was the But there's never that level of camaraderie brotherhood there. It's it, it always feels very much like they're just two cops doing their thing. They're partners, but they and and maybe that's because of Colin Farrell's performance that I feel that because it never felt like Crockett let Tub in, and that's I mean that's just the way I interpreted it. Yeah, I mean i I feel like it's there's like the background there of their brotherhood and their but they're kind of on their own journeys at least in this mm -hmm. film and. You know, if this was an episode of the TV show, it's like, okay, this is his plot and this is his plot. And like, you know, mm -hmm. but they're not like locked in all the time together in right, the movie. Right. Um, it's interesting. I've been thinking about Jamie Foxx's performance. I just rewatched Collateral. I saw it on the big screen last weekend, which was amazing. Insanely jealous. Go on. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, God. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. He's such a nerd in this movie in yeah. collateral you know yeah. i'm like who makes jamie fox a nerd like he's <laughs> one of the coolest people of all time who just has like inherent swagger and you know here he is like spilling a sandwich and like you know <laughs> like his glasses and stuff but you know he comes into his own in the movie but um even the scene where he like goes to see the um goes to see javier bardem and or felix whatever his name is and he's like He's like, what do I do? How do I do this? I'm like, man, you're Jamie Foxx. Like, but of course he's he's Figure not it Jamie Foxx. But it's like only <laughs> Michael Mann would take Jamie Foxx and be like, you're the rule follower. You're the nerd. <laughs> he's and just stre kinda... stretching him to his limit. I know. It's yeah. I, I think it's cool. I love seeing him in that register because it it's it's kind of uh it's totally different from his persona. Um, but yeah, it, but yeah, there he sorry that was kind of a tangent off of your point but just you talking no, no, about no. what what ricardo's doing and and how it's it, he is the the like okay let's follow the rules by the book and i do think that sunny is a good undercover agent because he's on the edge 
because mm -hmm. he's kind of feral. Like he's mm -hmm. not really all, you know, you kind of have to pull him back from the brink. And so that's kind of why he can go in the way that he can go in. I think that you might have nailed it, which is that we've talked about one of the, you know, obviously this is a troubled shoot that then brings us this film, et cetera. There's some, you know, controversy happening behind the scenes. I think if one thing suffers, it's their chemistry. Because if there's any conflict, whether it's Jamie Foxx's perception of what the role is or how the movie's going or whatever the case may be, and they're not vibing together, I don't think it's the amount of screen time. I don't think it's what they do together. It's just about if it doesn't resonate in that moment for a viewer, then it's not working, right? Like there's not that connection. And and I was just thinking about the complete, two complete difference about people who are against each other, but there's an inherent camaraderie in one of my favorite films, which is a noir film, LA Confidential. So you get Russell Crowe mm -hmm. and Guy Pearce and they're both young pups and they're, it's, you know, their mm -hmm. first huge foray into big Hollywood filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But both of these guys were in, like, toilers in Australia for years, like, and mm -hmm. decades. Mm -hmm. And so they'd done it. They'd interacted on shows. They'd been up for the same parts. They'd been around each other. Mm -hmm. And so as much as they're against each other, when those two guys are then together at the end of that movie, mm -hmm. they you are like... that. Like, when they're looking at each other, especially in that Victory Motel, and, and, and that, oh... oh are you guys playing the good cop, bad cop routine? I practically invented it. And then Guy Pearce just looks at Crow and Crow just tosses that shit bag out the window, <laughs> basically head hangs him dangling from a, from a, you know, however many stories up in LA. Um, that is special. And they have a connection. Like there's that, that, that chemistry that those two guys have from their interactions in their career is like lightning and you can't, there are certain things you can't fake. You need to yeah. like each other. I think yeah. you've got to be very good to trick because there's great interviews also after this troubled shoot, you know, you know, uh, on the campaign trail for Miami Vice where, you know, just random, you know, TV presenters are like, so are you guys looking forward to working together again? And there's like a, <laughs> a silence that you could fly a jumbo jet through. That's just like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We loved it. Yeah, you know? it's great. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, we hope, hope we can do another one of these one day. That's the behind the scenes story I want to hear. The oh. like investigative deep dive. <laughs> oh my God. We'll get there eventually, Katie. I think I what we're doing say... here is we're compiling this investigation slowly. One, <laughs> one episode at a time. Totally. I was going to say about chemistry, I, I, just to give a comparison. It's not a movie, but a TV show. Um, Woody Harrelson and uh, Matthew McConaughey in oh, True Detective Season 1. Ah. Where these are two guys who hate each other. Like, and and one of these days, I want to do a whole podcast about True Detective, like y'all did with uh, Inherent Vice, because I am obsessed with that first season. But uh, I am. Don't even get me started. Uh, but um, let's just. I got let's all just, these yellow. Can you just pump the? Even, can you? Just I got pump, all these. I got all these. Can you just pump the brakes? Because we can take this offline, Sean. If you want me to produce it, it's done. Like it's all over. Like it's it's. I mean, what are we even doing here except you hosting the True Detective show? Are you fucking kidding me? That's not what this show was meant to Man, be. But we're gonna pause that and we're gonna come back to Miami Vice. We're gonna take this conversation offline. You said the magic well, words to Blake. You said the magic words to Blake. Podcast and True Detective, True Detective. Season 1. I've been like, oh, uh, it's been on the well, list, we'll, Sean. We'll talk, talk, we'll talk about the podcast later, but I will make this point that the characters in True Detective, you know, Russ and Marty, hate each other. They do yeah. not like each other personally. But like you were saying, whether it's McConaughey and Harrelson 
knowing each other through Hollywood, or whether they're just really both great actors. The characters come to respect each other, and that respect trumps their dislike. And with Colin Farrell and, 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 and Jamie, I don't know if the personal issues got in the way of creating that sense of, of camaraderie and respect. Also, yeah. I will say this, as much as I give Sonny a lot of, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of hard on Sonny, how haunted he is, and he's broken. He's nowhere near as crazy as Russ Cole. Oh my God, Russ Cole as an undercover agent is terrifying. Oh, it's like, I would, rather, I would rather hang out with the bikers. Than <laughs> the, 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 they got rules. There's a great meme that goes around where someone where someone got that Russ Cole face where he's smoking a cigarette yeah. and they put a phone in it where he's holding a phone. Oh yeah. And I that's a frequent response on Twitter when you just see someone like absolutely going ham and you're like, oh god. <laughs> but you know, it's it's funny. Harrelson and McConaughey had worked together in Ed TV, you know, and again, right. that, that it was that weird time where Ed TV and Truman Show came out. It was like the, the whole explosion of reality television and then films trying to explore like what reality television was. And so I think actually part of the miracle of the show, Sean, actually just underscores your point. These guys loved each other. Like they were like, go on vacation together, buddies. And so they spend whatever it is, you know, six and a half-ish episodes really showing A, a form of camaraderie, but B, this insane conflict. And they just sell it to perfection. But when they come together and how different they are, there is a genuine something. And I feel like it's that yeah. that knowledge of each other. And they just knew, like, that whole show is about, and this is Harrelson. I think Harrelson's such an underrated person in that because he has, he has the thankless shitbag role. But he really is kind of like, he really just goes for it. He, he's happy to be the thankless shitbag who has the bad marriage and is the bad husband and is the bad cop and, and does all those things and is a bad partner and all that. But uh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. There, there, there's something, again, about that connection. Those guys, it just sells it towards the end. You know, you, you just get it. And that's not to say that Miami Vice, like I, I love the movie and I love their individual performances. And I, like I said, again, I'm a sucker for cinematography, set design, uh, and plot, and narrative. And, and I think the plot of Miami Vice, the movie, is not as linear, and, uh, and it's a little convoluted, but you, you can overcome that with great performances in a film, you know? You can overcome a, a very convoluted, weird plot with really good committed performance. And these guys are giving it their all. And so are all the supporting actors and actresses. And, I, and even though I love the movie, there is something happening that doesn't allow it to completely gel. Mm. You know, it doesn't allow it to completely, it, it goes from being a, there's something that keeps it from going to being a really good movie to being a great movie. And both of these guys are great actors. You know, uh, I love Jamie Foxx, not just in Ray, but I love Jamie Foxx in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I loved him in Baby Driver. I thought he was great in Baby Driver. He's oh, yeah, under yeah, yeah. I think he's actually, even though he's got an Oscar, even though he's got <laughs> he's an underrated, Oscar, he's an underrated yeah. actor. Because yeah, it's, he is. I think people it, it, do not it, appreciate it. And people forget. I think people forget. It's like Baby Driver. It's so funny. Like Jamie Foxx and John Hamm are the best things in Baby Driver, and they're probably in at least. You know what I mean? Like, like they are yes. just. You know, John Hamm is like dripping 
with, you know, just sleaze. And it's wonderful. It's like, oh, yes. Like, more of him as the sleazy villain, please, and thank you. Um, and Jamie Foxx is terrific in it, just like lean, mean, like right into it. But, yeah, it's really just weird because I think – how do you forget the year that he was nominated for both Ray and Collateral? How, like, how do people forget that? Like, he was nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor in the same year. Can you imagine – if he walked away with both, that would have been like, oh I mean, God. and he could have, and he could, totally could have. Yeah. There's no, there wouldn't have been much of an argument. The best supporting actor category is always pretty stacked. So whoever wins it is usually like, yeah, great. It's always a happy one. You know, like any one of the nominees in a best supporting actor category usually wins. And you're like, yeah, great. Awesome. Um, but yeah, no, it's a really interesting thing because I think at the moment, cause he's doing like game shows and stuff. He's not into it. He's doing some comedies yeah. and stuff. He's just, maybe hasn't been as keen to, you know, stay in acting. And he was a comic for years, like a, you know, obviously a massive comic. So yeah, just a guy who's, you know, really just leans into whatever is he's so inclined to do at any given time. Yeah. I think he just does whatever he wants to do. Like yeah. he's like, I'm going to be yeah. doing stuff with my daughter. Who's like a actress mm -hmm. and host and stuff now. But, you know, I think he's just like, ah, oh, I, I, he follows his bliss. <laughs> yeah. And I think also, I think he had, you know, he had a couple I won't say, I hate saying flop. He had a couple of movies that didn't really do well. And I think he's the type of person that's not, I don't know the guy, but he seems like a person that's not obsessed with being a movie star, you know? And so okay. I think he's able to kind of navigate that. Like, oh, oh you know, cause he was on TV for years. He's, you know, you say he's been a comic for years. And I think when you come from a background that, you know, you struggle, you know, you don't. And he's also in Django. I think we can't forget that he's. We can't. We can't yeah. also forget that he's, oh, he's the lead great. of fucking Django Unchained, which is just. Oh, he's great. He's great. But and I, I, I think, think Colin Farrell to. A, I think Colin Farrell to a certain extent is underrated. I don't think people give him his due. You know, totally. Uh, a, a, a sacred deer is amazing. It's incredible. It, oh it, it's so disturbing. And so I think Lobst he got that. The lobster. The lobster is yeah. out of I'm control. Just, I'm so glad he like linked up with Yorgo Slanthimos and is just like fully leaning into doing art house stuff, weird stuff, but also mm -hmm. then like doing like a, a fantastic beasts every now and then mm -hmm. to like get some studio money. But <laughs> I, I do think to your point earlier, Sean, about how you're like, there's some kind of something that's not coming together with this movie. And like, we love this movie and we always say, oh, this movie's great. And it's this, but like, not everybody thinks that and it is sort of this <laughs> underrated thing that we're kind of trying to like rehabilitate but like i will be the first to say that like you know i don't think this is movies like a masterpiece or like you know it's not winning tons of awards and like the, it took me a while to kind of like get it but i do mm -hmm. think that that like there's this unsettledness to it that kind of makes it really addictive to watch but also you're like trying to figure it out but you're like but this it like it's it's so raw and like rough hewn in a way, but, but also so like, I, I get what you're saying. I don't know if I'm articulating it perfectly, but like, I get what you're saying that like, but it's, it's like, there's the potential and the energy is there that you're like, what's going on here? Like, why and, is this, and, well, how is this working? And make no mistake. I love the movie. Whenever, yeah, like, it's yeah, one of those yeah, movies, yeah. whenever it comes on TV, I got to stop and watch it, you know, and if it's, you know, we're flipping through the channels or whatever. And I think, it's one of those movies that as time go on, people will appreciate it more. Mm -hmm. uh, because like I said, it's, I'm going to go, I'm going to refer back to Tequila Sunrise, which is an old movie from the mid, uh, late 80s, early 90s that a lot of people didn't see. But it was 
trying to mine that same territory of haunted people, and I'll say haunted men because they're the lead, and how this particular type of criminal activity is all encompassing. And, you know, this under trying to be an undercover drug cop, when you see, I think there's something to be said for the massive amounts of money that you're seeing moving around, the massive, incredibly hedonistic lifestyle that goes along with this type of criminal endeavor, that it does take a special kind of person to see all that. You know, this isn't the untouchables where Elliot Ness doesn't even look in the envelope. Yeah, I'm not for bail. And, you know, Kevin Costner has tossed the envelope back. These are guys who, like you said, are living regular lives, and they're looking at 150,000, 250,000, 20 kilos of cocaine. And there's something to be said in the movie for how they're able to withstand that, and they're yeah. able to yeah. com complete the mission and not just say, "Fuck it, let's go to Belize, let's go somewhere without extradition," you know. And so I think there is a difference, and I think that tone—that's the thing that I always come back to in the movie—is yeah. how much they're sacrificing. You know, to be the good guy. Yeah, and I think that's what's fascinating to me. Yeah, I've so I've never seen Tequila Sunrise, but I just looked it up. Robert uh, Town, written, directed. Yeah, yeah. Mel Gibson, Michelle Pfeiffer, Kurt Russell. Got to watch this one. Yeah, thanks that, for the rec. Yeah, big big yeah, recommendation. No big recommendation. I haven't watched that in ages. I've been on a bit of a Peter Weir tear. So the other day I watched My Year of Living Dangerously, and it made me think of Tequila Sunrise because I'm like, I haven't seen Tequila Sunrise in a long time either. Very big '80s. Your parents watching it uh, at home when you shouldn't be energy <laughs> in that movie. Um, but uh, I think I, I we have celebrated this movie because it has. Uh, I think. Katie, you put it best just before and tagging on what Sean was saying is there's an unpredictability and there's something implacable about what it's doing that continues to have you transfixed by it. No matter what it is, there might be some elements that don't resonate, don't necessarily work up and down uh, in the film, depending on how you're, um, you know, depending on just your experience of it, your relationship with the, um, the original TV show, all those other factors that can come in or just the kind of movies that you like. But that is something that continually impresses me is like every time we, you know, we, we come back to this show, we prepare, I watch like 15, 20 minute, random 20 minutes, just, you know, yeah. throw it on, <laughs> skip around, whatever I want to watch just yeah. to get back in the headspace. And I'm just like, there's something magic here because so many films that are trying, that have, and that are A, influenced by it, or B, just completely trying to rip from it and uh, to create something a little bit more like rote and a little bit more palatable um, for a kind of contemporary TV landscape or, you know, movie landscape. They all feel so predictable. Yeah. You can see what's going to happen in the first three minutes. And I love in Miami Vice that you're like, even the characters themselves are unpredictable, let alone the story. Like the story might play out in sort of uh, broad terms of how someone may predict it, but just like each move, what is going to happen? Why are they doing this? How is people, how are people going to react? And I think, I think every time that there's an opportunity for someone to react in this movie, they go against how you think that they should be. Like I still can't get over Colin Farrell going, um, do you want to come for a ride in my boat? Like it goes very fast. Like I still can't believe <laughs> That after that scene of like finding the drugs, he's like, let's go for a drink. It's like, are you insane? Like, but also this movie rules, you know, I think yeah. that that's, that's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's equally balanced like that, you know, that, that, um, that blind justice, you know, like it's equally balanced in, in its insanity and unpredictability and its awesomeness. For 
me as a fan of the TV show, it was like watching the characters grow up. No. It was like watching the characters become adults. And I, because, you know, let's, I, for me, again, I'll be honest, the TV show is a 16-year-old boy's fantasy of what being an undercover cop is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it, it is a testosterone-fueled, you know, hayride of sex, drugs, and, and, and rock and roll. And the movie is Miami Vice middle age. And I don't mean that as a slight. I mean that as these are people who are dealing with the realities of being an undercover agent. These are the people that are dealing with the realities of what this does to your life, what it does to your heart and your soul and your yeah. psyche. And it is, the, again, the tonal shift. And I personally like it. I have some friends who are Miami Vice TV show fans uh, that hate the movie with a passion. And I think it's because, and I say this with all love, I think it's because there's a part of you that hasn't matured in a way that can appreciate this movie. And, and that's the truth. There's, there's a part of you that still wants to be that 16-year-old kid. And if you want that, then watch the TV show. Right. You know, I get this question with, with and I'm not, like, my both both of my, my first two, well, not first two, but my most recent books, Black Top Wasteland and Raised by Tears, have both been optioned for films. And people ask me, they're like, are you going to be upset if they change things or whatever. And the funny answer is, I don't care because they paid me. But, <laughs> but, the real, but the real answer is, is something that Lee Child said. You know, whatever happens to the movie, the books are still on the shelf. You can go read yeah. the books. The books are right. one thing and the movies are different. And I've actually had the opportunity to read the script, the first script that's been written for Black Cop Wasteland. And there's some significant changes. But I was re I tried to read it as just a, a reader, not as the author of the book. And it doesn't hurt the story, although there's a really cool <laughs> there's a really cool bit in the book that's not gonna be in the movie and it's one of the best pieces of writing I've ever done. And I say that <laughs> without any ego. I just I, I whenever people talk about that book, they always talk about this piece of and this and this piece of dialogue and it's not gonna be in the movie, so tear. Um but uh having said that I think if you are a fan of the Miami Vice TV show and you don't like the movie, that's fine. But you shouldn't be comparing it to the TV show because right. they're vastly different things. And you they're can't. And they're still available. That, I think that that's. I think <laughs> yeah. that that's what's. Yeah. That's what's really cruel about. Um, that's one cruel thing, and I know we we ne we've never had to do this leap, but it's like that's the cruel thing about George Lucas and keeping the original Star Wars movies away from fans. It's like. Can you just give me the untouched one that I grew up with and loved <laughs> that I taped off TV on a VHS tape that had right. like KFC ads in it from like 1983? <laughs> like, can you please just give me that? That's yeah. all I want. And, and he's all, like, no, he's like, no. And, and George, I, and George is, and just like, no, no, it's like portrait. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of to like Blake's point and to, to Sean's point, like, to me, I can't believe that they let him, man, make this movie and have it be like so tragic and so haunting and like not a happy ending in any way. And like you see the films that maybe, um, you know, copied it or whatever, but they're very predictable. But like this movie, like it, it I think what people do connect with in this movie is that it is tragic and it, and it is this like very haunting thing. And that's not necessarily what the show was because it was more of a yeah we got we got the bad guy end of this episode right. and then and and so but it that's what that like darkness and that sadness is like what makes it a noir and that's and because noir is always about like the feel bad 
of yeah. it all. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, yeah, you have to look at it as as both as taking the TV show and turning it into a noir, and like that's going to be a completely different animal. Yeah, I think, and you know, noir is always about you know good people doing bad things for what they think is the right reasons. Whereas my advice to TV show is a fantasy. It's it's a yeah. fantasy of police work, and I and I think that if you can separate those two things, you can really enjoy the movie. And like I said, yeah. again, as a fan of neon noir, that subgenre, which includes drive, which includes the French New Wave, which includes, you know, Thief and and Anne Hunter and all that, I love it. Like, I, I think it looks incredible. The story, is, the performances are incredible. Yeah, there's some things missing, but no, no, you know, there are very few perfect movies. You know, there are very few uh, 100% Rotten Tomato movies. And I think it's okay to enjoy and love a movie that somebody else or the majority of people, like I, I'm going to give you a movie that I defend vociferously whenever it comes up. I love Widows. I think Widows I'm, is terribly underrated. I'm right, I think I'm right with you, bro. Is a fantastic, I'm right with you. I think Widows is a fantastic movie. I think, you know, I think Daniel Kaluuya, he won the Oscar oh, for uh, uh, he's, the Black Messiah, but he is He is so terrifying in Widows. He's so terrifying. Oh my God, he is so terrifying. Yeah. And David Tyree Henry is great. And, you know, Liam Neeson is great. And Colin Farrell as the corrupt councilman trying to. Oh, having a fight with his dad as Robert Duvall, basically just wearing his pajamas, yeah. is outstanding. I'm just going to, I'm going to yes. go ahead. And so. I, w I have to say this because you've just brought it up. And, Ka and I saw Katie's reaction. It made me so excited. Um, we literally just talked about Blake being like, Widows is underrated, like, last week. Yeah, we like, talked about it last week. I I I'm just like, it's going to come around. It's going to come around. I tell people, and I tell filmmakers and uh, anyone who ever listens to this show, don't ever compare the thing you're doing to Heat. Don't. You're, 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 mm -hmm. you're, you are destined to fail. But I mm -hmm. genuinely, and this is me, sort of an expert, I think that Widows is maybe one of the best heist movies I've ever seen and is one of the only films that could, like, is in that breath that I would use heat. Like, it's so profoundly about the psychology of the people that are involved in the heist and the heist is the secondary mm -hmm. thing because that is actually yeah, heat yeah, too. Yeah. Like, as much as it's the greatest shootout scene of all time it is way more about the psychology of the characters and their motivations to do the heist which is why you're actually invested in it when the heist happens and i feel like widows is just a an adjusted modulation of that thing because the heist still is not the most important thing but the psychology and the influence and the textures of the town that are rendered in widows i am just completely blown away with i love that movie um uh, and i love every performance in it and uh and i yeah i and that 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 scene where Colin Farrell is being his most racist asshole, and you don't even see his face, you see the view from the the chauffeur driver driving him and his little side piece through home back to his house. Ah, oh, through the neighborhood. It is just yeah. yeah it's a great movie. It's a and, great movie. Yeah, great I think movie. I think it suffered because it came out, and I, I'm not. And then going over a tangent, we'll get back to my invite in two seconds. <laughs> it suffered because it came out the same. It came out the same time, I think, as Ocean's 8 with Sandra Bullock, or it was like a little bit before that. And it wasn't a feel-good, funny, let's which, all get the gang together movie. Which I'm it was sorry. A serious, it was a serious... <laughs> Ocean's 8 is objectively bad. Like, I'm it's really horrible. Sorry. It's really it's horrible. bad. It's 
Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not a it's not a good Kate movie. Kate Blanchett's, Kate Blanchett's outfits. Kate Blanchett's outfits. Ten out of ten. The movie. Half can star. I just can I just say this? What pissed me off about the movie the most as a writer is when Anne Hathaway characters character figures out what's going on. How the fuck do you figure that out? <laughs> there is no infrastructure laid. There is no foundational narrative set for you to figure any of this out. And it me. I remember sitting in a the movie theater with, I was in the movie theater with some people and I was like, when she figures it out, I'm like, I yelled, bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and I got shushed. I had to really but more but if the but movie hope- had been better and there were better vibes and better performances, you maybe wouldn't have cared as much. You wouldn't have cared as much if the movie, if <laughs> no, everything I, was I better. I would have bought in. I yeah, bought in. Exactly. <laughs> If, if everything was better, it would have been great. Um, I mean, this, but the, going back to Miami Vice. But, but the I telltale think... sign of a bad movie or like that that the movie's not working is when you're sitting there going, wait a second, that um, it wouldn't have taken them that long to do this. Like when you're doing the math in your head for certain things, that's a telltale sign that you're not like swept away by things because you're like, wait, if she's sitting there for three hours, then she wouldn't be, you know, like... That's when you know things aren't working because <laughs> otherwise you'll forgive anything. You'll forgive any kinds of like plot holes or timing weirdness or any of that stuff when you're just like, oh, I just really like in being in this world. And a great example of that, a great example of this in uh, slightly outside of the genre, but definitely influenced by it is like The Dark Knight. Like The Dark Knight has plot holes up the wazoo. But you know what? It's really fucking enjoyable. It's insanely yeah. enjoyable. The performances right. are outlandishly great. The direction's phenomenal. Like it's a tense movie. It's it's really playing with the genre, and it's like, and it ends probably more bleakly than most superhero movies have ever ended. And it's like, yeah, the woman, you know, the, the damsel in distress dies, and Batman's depressed, <laughs> and the villain doesn't get killed. He just catches him. Like, how good is this movie? Like, yeah. who gives yeah. a shit about the plot holes? But yeah, I agree. Um, I, I also I, wait, do- I wrote a I wrote a whole I wrote a whole essay about the Dark Knight and it's lost forever on MySpace. I wrote it on my, my oh. MySpace page about how good this movie was. I wrote it on there because I got in an argument with the girl I was dating at the time. We went to see it and she was she's like, "Oh, this is so boring." And, I, and it was like my, my rebuttal. That's how I was so intensely <laughs> in love with this movie. But um. Anyway, it's probably good that it's gone. But uh, no, we must back. find it. <laughs> like, Forensic. Can someone go to the way back? Go to the way back on MySpace and bring that up. Look, before this show goes any further off the rails, I have to say, Sean, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about Miami Vice. This has been a complete blast, um, and yeah. I love that. For everyone out there, if you once wrote a rebuttal to your ex about the Dark Knight on MySpace, you too potentially could be a best-selling New York Times author. <laughs> and as eloquent as this man, and uh, and uh, we'll have to talk about uh, the True Detective podcast coming in 2023 with Sean and I. Uh, but like, guys, uh, this has been a pleasure, Katie. I mean, what more can so we say fun. about Sean? This uh, so good. I loved I loved this discussion and. 
we're full of tangents. All we do is tangents uh, all day long. So these yeah. were great tangents and we covered a lot of movies well, that we haven't had a chance to discuss. <laughs> yeah, really good. And if you just write well, down every recommendation you. in this scattergun, uh, I think you're in a good you're in good shape. Sean, like is there any is there anywhere other than, you know, the wonderful Blacktop Wasteland, um, which I told you I found in a tiny, a teeny tiny, this is the Australian cover, just in case you didn't know, a teeny tiny Australian bookshop down the south coast. And when I bought it, the bookshop owner asked me, what is it with this book? And I was like, sorry? (laughs) He's like, there's been a lot of people picking this book up. What is this author? Who? And I'm like, oh, actually, you know him a little bit. Neo-noir, you know, rural, you know, dark, gritty. Um, So it's so, so great. Blacktop Wasteland, obviously Razorblade Tears, man. Congratulations on all your success. I'm going to link your terrific New York Times profile in the... um, in the description of this, which is just amazing, um, a recent one about you in there. But is there any anywhere else that people can find you or anything else that you're up to that you want to share just before we let you go? Yeah, um, you can find me on, on uh, Twitter uh, where I'm handing out free unsolicited opinions on everything at BlackLionKing73. Uh, I have an author's page, but I'm hardly ever on it on facebook i swear to god i'm in the process of building a website i need to do it because i get the weirdest emails and i want to like uh, uh i want to share some of those people on the website <laughs> or something like that. um and i'm currently uh i get strange oh my god there's strange stuff but anyway um i'm currently working on my next book um uh it's uh tentatively titled all the sinners bleed and it is going to be a southern gothic mystery noir about the first black sheriff in a small southern town who uh, tries to stop a school shooting and then finds out that through that crime, his small southern town has been the dumping ground for a serial killer for about 15 years. And so he's trying to catch the serial killer. Wow. While at the same time dealing with some far-right extremists who want to hold a parade to defend the town's uh, Confederate statue. So, you know, my usual light, <laughs> you just had a, uh, you, you just said every word on my bingo card of exactly the kind of shit that I want to read. So I cannot wait to see that. I cannot wait to keep consuming your stuff. And it's sort of strangely, I can't wait to see these emails. I really can't wait to see the emails you post. I'm going to black the people's name out, but I, 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 I'll tell you one. One before we go, one before we go. Oh my I had an God. email where someone wrote me that they felt like I, that we were connected because Blacktop Wasteland was just like a dream they had had. And they felt like that we were on the we soulmate. <laughs> and and, it, and I, 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 I did not reciprocate that feeling, but I appreciated the intense uh, connection with the book. But yeah. Uh, um, I, I want to th- I, I wanna thank you for that story. I will talk about that. I want to thank you for that story. I want to thank you for Katie's reaction face just now. <laughs> Is maybe what I might have to meme that because it was like when someone it was like that guy that it's like oh like like how did you come to that conclusion outstanding um, Sean thank you so much this has been a blast um, you're yeah. the best guys thanks for listening to Miami Nice we'll see you soon and uh, and uh, oh, we'll so we'll much, have more yeah. we'll have more to talk about with Sean I'm sure at another stage yes
belongs to a tree. Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out OneHeatMinute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.